This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. And a very merry, joyous, and blessed Christmas to you all. Kala Christuyana to my Greek family and friends. George Freund is standing by with some important information pertaining to the terrorist attacks that took place back on December the 2nd in San Bernardino, California, that left 14 dead and dozens injured. And you may ask, why are we talking about it now? Why still? Uh, Because... There is a growing list of inconsistencies in that case, oddities uh, that relate to the worst act of terrorism in the United States since 9-11. And quite frankly, they are not uh, getting the attention, these oddities, these inconsistencies, not getting the attention that they deserve in the mainstream media. And that's why this program exists, uh, to cover uh, those things that tend to get glossed over uh, by others. Uh, And here's the other thing. The painful truth, I'm afraid. Uh, it pains me to, to say this uh, at Christmas, a time of uh, a joy and peace and family, but we have to be honest. Uh, the events that took place on the 2nd of December in San Bernardino, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again somewhere in uh, the United States or Canada. Uh, more than once, perhaps. We are now, I think we have to come to terms with this. Not pleasant to say. But it is the stark reality. Uh, and nobody seems to want to just come out and say it. So I will. Western civilization is at war with radical jihadis, with radical Islam. Not talking about the vast majority of Muslims who are peace loving. I am talking about radical fundamentalist Islam. We are at war. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the better the better we will be able to defend ourselves and prepare ourselves. All right, um, on to brighter things. Uh, Two gentlemen who are with me in studio every week, Ian Robertson and Albert Vinzel, they do a wonderful job. And gentlemen, I just want to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas, a healthy, joyous, prosperous New Year. And thank you uh, for everything that you both do all year long. Uh, please visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. Don't forget to register there. It's fast, it's free, it's easy. And once you're a member, you have access to the past show archives and a whole lot more. And once you've landed on strangeplanet.ca, just click on the page for the Conspiracy Show radio program. And up at the top of that page, you'll see the slide carousel where Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits, fascinating news stories. Uh, There's a great uh, story or a great video there, series of videos from remote viewer pioneer Hal Puthoff, uh, speaking about his role in Project Stargate. And in the wake of the Paris Climate Change Summit, 
zengardner.com has posted an article titled Anatomy of a Hoax. Let's talk about climate change. And that's for those of you like me who do not subscribe to anthropogenic global warming. Uh, and just in time for Christmas, a nice little piece on the Slavic origins of a character known as Grandfather Frost, who bears a great deal of resemblance to Father Christmas or Santa Claus. And finally, there's also a notice up on the slide carousel that the TV program, The Conspiracy Show, all three seasons, now available to our American viewers on Hulu and Amazon.com. All right, those are the appies and the eggnog. Now it's time to tuck into the main entree and talk turkey. George Freund is a researcher and writer, independent investigator, and the host of a wildly popular podcast called The Conspiracy Cafe. He joins us on the program from time to time to discuss major news events like the missing Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, irregularities in Canada's recent federal election, and much more. Hey, George, welcome to The Conspiracy Show, my friend. Merry Christmas. How are you? Oh, very good, thank you, and Merry Christmas to you, too. Well, uh, before we get rolling, and lots to discuss, obviously, uh, let's uh, let people in on uh, your podcast, Conspiracy Cafe, how they, how they can find it, when they can listen to it, and so forth. Well, you just have to Google me online, uh, go after my name, or Conspiracy Cafe, it's all over the place. And uh, there's just a hyphen between conspiracy and cafe because I think it was the Russian mob had one without the hyphen and they wanted a fortune to it. Or <laughs> you don't want to cross them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we we took the cheap way out. All right. And when do you when do you record or, or produce these well, podcasts? I record on an ad hoc basis. Uh, you know, it's usually once or twice a week as the news flies because I got to work for a living and. Uh, you know, we uh, put uh, an advance notice up on the website, and we post news all the time on the website so that you're kept informed of, uh, you know, whatever disasters are on the way or whatever solutions we think we have to the problems of the chaos that's uh, set upon the world. And, uh, you know, it's well worth uh, coming in to have a look because these things aren't well reported, especially any information that uh, officially uh, goes against the official version is frequently flushed down the toilet very quickly and no one gets to know what happened. And uh, we fall like mandarins. And it just surprises me how obvious things can be that people are almost robotic in their response that uh, they heard it on mainstream media and they follow along even if they defy laws of gravity or whatever else. I, I believe psychologists call this a phenomena normal biasy. Uh, and that is, you know, we, we deny that something is terribly wrong. Uh, and, and, and that is in part why I think, unfortunately, people will sit around almost waiting for their turn to be executed when we have these mass shootings. It's just... Uh, a, some sort of a strange psychological effect, and they, I, I think they call it normal biasy. But um, before we get ro- uh, be, before we get into North Korea and, and other matters, uh, I just want to commend you uh, because you've been uh, coming on this program for a few years, but I've known uh, of your work before that, and you were a, um, sort of a regular caller to some of my other programs over the years. And um, I'm a, I'm, I consider myself first and foremost a broadcaster. Uh, but you're really on the front lines because you're a researcher. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you talk about that appears on your website and that's in the, the, the podcast, Conspiracy Cafe, this is your own legwork, really, isn't it? Yes, mine's there as well as other pertinent uh, facts and information that uh, may come from alternative sources or mainstream media, but just something that uh, 
for, for whatever reason, just doesn't get popular, and I don't understand why. One news thing that I found last night was there's supposed to be uh, a giant comet passing by Earth uh, around Christmas time. And they said uh, in the British press it would come so close that they were worried it could cause an earthquake. Well, I think, wow, man, <laughs> that sounds important almost. You know, that, uh, that right, could be right. a life-changing or species-ending event. Why isn't it uh, on the morning news when I wake up? And why do you suppose that is? Uh, a lot of it is they're selling mass marketing advertising, and they got to appeal to uh, you know the broad niche, and they're not interested in listening to things like that. They're interesting into the classical town crier all is well. So you have to say all is well, and if you don't have a variation of that, uh, you're just not going to get the listenership that you're going to get. So if you have like a stupid story that's really fun and popular, like something you might see on YouTube or everybody just crams in and they, you know, somebody did a gaffe or something stupid and, uh, and you know, millions of people will watch that, you tell them that, uh, you know, there's going to be a major issue in the stock market and banks may close and they're not the slightest bit interested. And I wonder, well, what planet do you live on? You know, you need money to eat, you need a job, you need a functional economy. Why don't you find this interesting and important? Uh, and, you know, it's, it's just like one of the mysteries of, uh, of life, really. How long have you been doing this? Well, it started, uh, you know, quite some time ago. Of, of, you know, people were trying to teach me about the world, and I was young and I wasn't listening. So one of them was my police supervisors ages and ages ago. There used to be a magazine out called The Plain Truth, and he was telling me about, uh, you know, basically what we would call the New World Order, and there's a pressure to make a global government. And I just thought, well, you know, you're a nice, kindly old man, but, you know, I'll pat you on the head and go my own way. And uh, But I listened to what he said. And then after uh, career change, I worked with a very fine Greek gentleman who uh, was on the presidential guard in Greece, and he talked the same way. And I thought, wow, what a miracle. You know, I go from one life to another life, and here's another chap. And then, uh, you know, he got me to read some books by Professor Robert O'Driscoll. And as soon as I started to read the first paragraph, the first chapter of, uh, you know, the New World Order and uh, uh, his trilogy of books, it was just instantly, you know, you see a pattern here where someone's trying to take control of the planet Earth. And there's no mistake about it. Information's controlled. History is controlled. Lies are perpetrated. And when truths arise, they're just somehow shuffled off into the back like they never existed in the first place. And I realized we're against uh, a very large adversary who's trying to control how we think and how we act to circumstances. And if we don't do something, we're going to go down the drain. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just say, well, you're, you know, you're only one person, you can't do anything. And I go, well, I'm only one person, and I try to do everything I can, anywhere I can. The door opens, the window opens, you fly through it, and you, and you do something, because it just may be enough. You never know who's listening, you never know who's hearing and what influence they may have down the road. I always, uh, you know, appeal to, you know, maybe someone who's in the military and has their finger near a certain button that if an order comes one day and you don't think it's right or proper, that you don't push that button and uh, save the human race from some uh, oblivion. And uh, you know, I was really surprised once when I did a show on MH370. It got to be one of the most popular recordings I've ever done. And, uh, you know, just we should just point order. out, excuse me, George, that we were referring to the, the mi missing Malaysian uh, airliner that went down and still, well, <laughs> some, they claim they, they found it off the coast of, of um, uh, Madagascar in, in um, southeast uh, Africa, although I think there's still a lot of questions about whether, in fact, that was the wreckage, and I know you were on top of that. Yes, I thought it was a fake operation. The Australian Navy happened to be in the area 
the week before for some strange reason shaking hands in all these islands and they did some amphibious landing uh, training for their special forces people could have very easily planted evidence but uh, where I was really surprised is I thought the thing went to Diego Garcia right off the bat because it's the only airport that you could have secrecy that could handle the plane and there were witnesses in the island chain north of that that saw the plane and they've never seen a jet plane like that before and they're still interviewing these uh, very credible witnesses. And Diego Garcia is a joint U.S.-British uh, uh, installation, I, I believe, and they claim, and I found this to be incredible, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this report, George, but they claim that they had on that particular day, uh, they had their radar uh, shut down for maintenance. I mean, what super-secret installation uh, would just shut down their radar? Yeah, they have backup systems for everything in the military. It's the 21st century. If it was, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, okay, maybe because odds are nobody can come around and get you. But this is the space age, the missile age. There, there's no, uh, you can't do that. But uh, I ended up getting a cluster of listeners uh, to that show from Diego Garcia. Is that right? It just shocked me. <laughs> like, here's this little tiny island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. They're going over my material. And they were coming back regularly to look at other things, and then they disappeared. And then I found that uh, it ended up they started coming from different places, like Guam or you know other remote places. So maybe the, the band of brothers got broken up and transferred all over the world for looking at uh, heresy. <laughs> right. Well, you, it's, it's right. You never know who's listening. George Freund is with us from Conspiracy Cafe here on The Conspiracy Show, coming up on a break. And when we come back, we will talk about uh, North Korea and... Uh, uh, Kim uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, who claims that he has a hydrogen bomb, a thermonuclear device. Now, not a, and, and these, from what I understand, are more powerful, uh, pack more explosive power than even an atom bomb. Uh, this cannot be independently verified, according to intelligence officials, but we'll get the lowdown on that from George. Some interesting prophecies regarding uh, North Korea and Kim Jong-un. Um, but before we do that, just back to the Malaysian thing, and I, we just got about a minute here. What do you think happened to the, the Malaysian Air, Air, Airline Flight 370? I believe it was abducted for the people on the plane, because uh, there were some scientists who did some high-level patent research on some very, very space-age, super-sophisticated material, and they shared the patent with their employer, and there's a survivor's uh, clause in their contracts that the survivor wins. Well, you can't kill the corporation, but all the other patent holders disappeared with the plane. And the technology was so advanced, it, would, it was just like light years, leaps ahead of what we have now. And they were going to China, and maybe they were worried about it, or maybe they just wanted to get rid of them. But I think they were stolen. And uh, that this technology could have been so advanced that it could decide who wins a war, who loses a war, who could have mastery over the planet Earth. And I think they did uh, get rid of the plane because uh, there were parts found at the MH17 crash site that even though these were sister ships, there were certain anomalies that one had over the other, and one is like a window panel that was closed in over the, the name of the airline. George, we've got to jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. You're referring, of course, to the uh, Malaysian airliner that went down in, uh, in Ukraine during the, uh, the Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict. We'll uh, come back. George Freund at Conspiracy Cafe here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We're back with George Freund from The Conspiracy Cafe. Again, give us a website, George www.conspiracy-cafe.com 
or like say just Google my name everywhere I've been if I've been on other people's shows or venues or some 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 of my shows have been translated into other languages Italian uh, and uh, such like that my old show at that channel was even translated into Norwegian and <laughs> played in Norway and truckers would play it on their CBs up in the northern Ontario uh, area so uh, like I say you 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 launch the uh, the words and people pick them up they carry them somewhere and you can have great influence uh, it's it's just phenomenal that way and it gives us a chance to even the score and hopefully stop disasters and tragedies from assuming the power that they were intended to have in the first place. All right. I want to talk uh, about Kim Jong-un, North Korea's strong man, and he is making a rather audacious claim that his country has uh, hydrogen bombs. Well, actually, he says they have both. They have atomic weapons and hydrogen bombs, and, of course, hydrogen bombs are said to be even more powerful than an atomic weapon, and intelligence... uh, uh, officials in the West are saying that they can't verify this claim. What do you make of it? I don't believe him. I, I don't think he's telling the, the truth. I think it's bluff and bravado. It's kind of like a dare, come and get me. And But there's this fear card that he has so that uh, you don't react. And that's part of uh, the intelligence operations or diplomatic relations. It's a ploy and counterploy, just like playing poker. You never know when somebody's bluffing, but you don't want to take the chance of maybe uh, attacking him or taking advantage of him in case the bluff is true. So you may hesitate or pull back. So he gets the advantage of having a hydrogen bomb, even though he doesn't have one. And I don't believe he does have one. I think if he did, he would have blown it up and shown the world firsthand that I've got something that really goes boom. And uh, so I don't believe him, but... uh, I was dubious at the atomic bomb claims as well because it was a massive explosion in North Korea of a dynamite shipment that was just phenomenal. It went off on the Richter scale. So I don't know if they were faking uh, something to make it look like they had a very small nuclear weapon, but uh, they're trying to say that they have confirmed he has a few atom bombs, and uh, that may have well transpired since the first test was way back in 2006. So uh, many years have gone by. It's almost a decade. Maybe he has acquired some. But one of the uh, interesting things about North Korea is it's prophecy central from way back. And it's just my good fortune to have worked in uh, as with a colleague, Timothy Spearman, at that channel, who uh, taught English in Korea as a professor, studies uh, the Korean history very, very well, is doing documentary programming in Korea for political and historical uh, purposes, who's very well informed on these things. And uh, he taught me of a a Korean prophet named, uh, pardon me, just uh, choking from uh, my concentration there. So he he has this uh, Korean prophet, and uh, he told us about what was going to come and what was going to happen. He's like the the Korean Edgar Cayce. Ah, His name is Gang Il-sun. And uh, you know, son. for anybody who's Korean, if I don't pronounce it right or something, you know, I'm trying to anglicize, pronounce it as best I can, and I'm not sure of all your uh, enunciation, so I may make a mistake. But uh, he predicted some amazing things. Uh, you know, he predicted the American-Japanese uh, War. He died in 1909, of course, so he never lived to get to see it. He said that there would be a pole shift. And, uh, you know, that's something right up the lines of Edgar Cayce. Yes, in, in, indeed. Yes, he said that exact, uh, he used that exact term, a pole shift. Yes, and the uh, lead-up to this pole shift is a three-day war. And uh, this three-day war will occur 
uh, it'll be, uh, so at the time he didn't know anything about nuclear weapons, he just said Seoul will be consumed in, in fire, like totally destroyed in fire, and there'll be nothing left of the place. And then shortly thereafter, there'll be a disease that will kill Americans. It'll be a biological weapon, basically. And uh, at first it'll stay in Korea for 68 days and kill uh, people inland. The Americans will flee and try to get away from Korea, leave the peninsula to get away from this disease, which will eventually leave the uh, peninsula and go around the world and affect the whole world. So it's a very, very uh, interesting bit of prophecy from this man, well before we understand the technology and abilities of the era that we're living in today that right. can happen. Did he give did he give a time frame? Did he affix a date to this to these this cataclysm? No. Basically what he's done is uh he's explaining it in a in a more bizarre uh, way is there's in his opinion a heaven and uh, there's two heavens and one of them is probably like spiritual and one is physical. And when you get into uh, people who do things like a lot of the flat earth videos or such, there's one that's out called Under the Dome where the uh, videographer says that we actually have a barrier between us and space to keep our atmosphere in. And this barrier is what protects us and keeps out evil influences in the world. And uh, Gang Il-sung explained that uh, these heavens will be violated and uh, when they are violated, it's like a, a enemy force will come in, and uh, it's like a dynamic spiritual force, and that's spoken about in Revelation as well. Uh, I believe it's uh, Revelation 9:11, actually, that uh, this is going to uh, come to pass. That we are going to be infiltrated uh, by this demon spirit called Abaddon, and uh, it will be unleashed upon the end of the world. So this great opening of heaven will uh, presage this invasion, and then after that, you know, I don't know if he implies that it's something that uh, God's going to do to correct things, that there'll be a pole shift or a switch in the firmaments, that uh, you know, the world as we know it will cease to exist and a, a new heaven and a new earth will appear. And uh, so very profound thinking uh, for its day. Part of uh, the people who were in these uh, philosophies at the time you know, also uh, spoke about you know, things that we talk about still today, and the Korean the chap was Yen Son Sang Ye Nim, ruler of the three realms, and he talked about opening the gates to the spirit world, and that by uh, they would renew the heavens and the earth and let in, you know, good energy and, and, and good spirits to come into the earth. The only downside is uh, after that was over, uh, instead of getting this uh, profound, cooperative, decent civil society, uh, these terrible prophecies came upon us instead. So maybe uh, what really happened is they opened the door to evil as opposed to something that they thought was good, which only makes sense because evil's classic lie is it pretends to be good. And then we drop our guards, lower our barriers, and allow in something that can take advantage of us while we're helpless. George Freund is with us from the Conspiracy Cafe here on the Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you as well. And um, well, you, you mentioned uh, you know opening up the heavens and allowing these negative, uh, evil, demonic influences in. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, and we haven't talked about this before, but I'm wondering if what your thoughts are on the hadron uh, hadron collider and whether that might. There's been a lot of discussion that the collider has some. 
uh, double purpose, some uh, nefarious purpose, uh, uh, aside from you know trying to create black holes or discover the composition of black holes or whatever their stated purpose is, uh, that it might have, in fact, uh, have something more to do with opening up such a portal. What are your thoughts on that? I believe so. I think there were uh, uh, writings or, uh, you know, of such at the site where they uh, had sayings. I don't remember what they are uh, posted uh, in public about things like that. There was also a strange anomaly, I believe, in the Netherlands where you had something that looked like a blue light uh, hitting the heavens and uh, spiraling out. So it's not like the this spiral that was in Norway or the one that was in Australia. It almost looked like the mistletail you saw going across Los Angeles. And uh, it, it flew up into the air. So uh, I believe uh, maybe the Daily Mail covered it, if I'm not mistaken. It said, could UFO sighting be sign of large hadron collider has created a portal to another dimension? So that's another thing when I saw that picture is, uh, you know, it, it, it just looks like a mushroom shape. It was green with a, a green uh, bit and then a long white tail shooting up into space. And, uh, you know, that's got to stop your heart a little bit to say, you know, hey, what's that? And the fact that it is distributed in a rather large uh, newspaper that goes around the world is followed quite extensively for, uh, you know, quite a, a lot of its political or uh, hard news stories and reporting, and that this is completely bypassed by, you know, most other media. I think, you know, that's almost like a heart stopper. Is you, you know, you wake up, you look outside your window, and, you know, you see the spaceship in your backyard. It's got to change how you think a little bit. One would, yeah, I would, I would certainly be a little rattled, to say the least, if I saw something like that. But again, here we are with this very strange 20, it's not even a 48-hour news cycle anymore. It seems more like a, tw a 24, maybe even a 12-hour news cycle. Things are just speeding up, and we just move on. If they were to announce tomorrow there were, there was a, you know, a, a planet-killer asteroid heading our way, um, I, I'm quite confident that the next day they'd move on to something else. I don't know. Um, they talk about some, you know, pop star or Caitlyn Jenner or something. Who knows? It, but it is a very strange, very strange times we're living in. All the denial and distraction is in full force, to be sure. Oh, indeed. But uh, you know, I find that boring. And uh, the quest for the truth to look at, uh, you know, secret mysteries from ages past, how they apply to today and what we can forecast for tomorrow as being like you're on the cutting edge in the pilot seat and uh, as opposed to sitting in the back in the passenger seat going wherever they take you. And uh, I'd rather fly the plane, even if I can't fly it as well as someone else, just to have the satisfaction of knowing I flew the plane and I took it to a place that no one else could take it. And I saw things, uh, you know, that no one else can hardly understand, and uh, the secrets of the universe. And that has to be stimulating uh, to a far greater extent, I think, than, uh, uh, you know, like how can that compare to sports or to popular entertainment or anything? Not that you don't like it, but it's uh, definitely not the, uh, the drug of choice. Well, but but it's not, George, and I think you would agree, it's not a, an easy road to hoe. I mean, I could probably be far more successful, uh, you know, doing a, an afternoon drive show at some radio station, uh, playing the hits or talking about what I call the workaday reality, the garbage strike, the provincial budget, and all of these things. Um, but once you start delving into these things that we talk about, you talk about, you, there's no going back. No. Um, but it, so it must not have been easy. It must not be easy for you either. 
Well, it wasn't easy, but uh, it changes your circle of friends, that's for sure, because some people can't keep up. And that's where I came up with a saying that the world moves at the speed of the predator, not the prey. And uh, the predator never asks you if you can understand or you can make sense of it. There's no remedial education or anything. It just swallows you. You're gone. And uh, so you have to train yourself to think better, faster, and try to understand things quicker when they happen. And part of it is just a simple learning process called pattern recognition. And uh, you know, when we get into many events uh, that are just international, global uh, change events, uh, the pattern's always the same, and I'm not the only one recognizing it now. Many other people are doing fine work uh, picking out right away that uh, there's a patsy, there's a drill. You know, or some people just follow drills. Where's a drill going to be? And then they're just all over the town or area to say, well, where are they going? What are they doing? And reporting on it as quickly as possible so they can't pull anything off. And uh, it's just surprising when we look at some of the events that have uh, you know, been monumental very recently. Uh, it happens. You know there's a drill. They won't tell you right away. You won't hear it in the first report. But someone's going to uncover it within a day or two. Paris had drills. San Bernardino had drills. Well, we'll talk about San Bernardino. We're and, going to uh, take a, a time out here, George. When we come back, we will talk about some of the oddities surrounding the San Bernardino uh, mass shooting. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, George Freund, my guest from Conspiracy Cafe. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. George Freund is with us from Conspiracy Cafe. Again, uh, George, uh, how can people listen to the podcast? Oh, I've uh, got quite a, I guess why they call it, internet footprint online, www.conspiracy-cafe.com. And uh, I know I was shocked uh, you know, back a long time ago when I found out that sometimes I get uh, more popular than the Prime Minister's uh, thing for hits and such like that because uh, he w- that was the old Prime Minister, not the new one. Mr. Trudeau might beat me by a lion's share now because he's more popular. But the, uh, the, o- the old charmer from before uh, who just doesn't cut it anymore had a hard time sometimes keeping up because uh, he's rather dry when he speaks, I think. All right. Now, uh, let's talk about... San Bernardino, still fresh in our minds, uh, and of course we all hearken back to the original reports. Three shooters. Now many of the witnesses have come forward. Not many, a number of witnesses, a three or four, I think, by last count, have come forward and said yes, there were three shooters. That's being dismissed as the uh, the fog of war, uh, where uh, eyewitness testimony in in such a cir- circumstance is considered to be. Um, unreliable, <laughs> which is interesting because we certainly rely on eyewitness testimony in a court of law. Um, but what do you make of these reports that there were three three shooters, not two? Oh, I believe them wholeheartedly. Uh, I, it's still up. I have the news clip from the local CBS station. I found it right away, and I could embed it on my website where uh, one of the ladies who reported the uh, three shooters is being interviewed. And you know, she makes no bones about it that uh, there, there are three men there, you know, and the man's very clear, like, are you sure? Are you sure? Oh, yes, yes, I'm sure. And she's describing him. And then at the end, the official story comes in that there's two and they're, they're male and female. And then, you know, they kind of head for the edge of the stage and, uh, and end the interview. But she was quite adamant that they were three. They were men. They were dressed in black. They were over six feet tall and they were white because she could see the skin around uh, under the mask or maybe a part of the hand or something like that. But yeah, that, that I don't know. Uh, I've heard that, too, that they were white. But that, again, they were wearing masks, they were wearing hats, they were wearing gloves. So I don't know if we can necessarily conclude 
that much. But the fact that they were athletic, uh, big men, over six feet, the female shooter in this instance uh, supposedly was about 90 pounds, how she could run around with a, an automatic uh, uh, weapon, uh, all the while texting, apparently, uh, seems to defy credulity. But um, so, Well, that's another classic sign of a false flag operation, is the people who are doing it, who are just average, nondescript people, have the abilities of Superman or Superwoman. They can carry great loads, do 12 things at once. They're seen in multiple places, maybe at the same time or within a reasonable period of time. They're able to get through police lines like the Invisible Man and appear somewhere else and uh, such. So that's the classic sign that we've been uh, hoodwinked and that this is uh, a created narrative and uh, such. So that witness who was speaking was called Sally Abdel. Magid, and she worked at the Inland Regional Center, and she was one of the first uh, witnesses that CBS News interviewed on that. And even the last guy who was in uh, a press report, which is a miracle, too, because if they're stonewalling you, it's, it's quite a good deal that you can get a, a press report, because usually you're just marginalized and ignored, and you stand on a street corner with a megaphone or something. But uh, he made it quite plain. He got a phone call, and he was not exactly threatened, but it pressured significantly to change his uh, his story so that it fits the party line. And, uh, you know, he refused. He said, no, this is what I saw. I saw three men, and uh, they were in black. He couldn't tell what race they were, but he saw three men. They were big guys, and they were all shooting at the same time. And that just uh, has a lot of credibility to it that this is what really happened. Because the other thing with the... Uh, the female uh, part of this is, you know, these guns that uh, were the rifle guns were big guns. They were man's guns. You know, that that was something like you'd use in the police department on the tactical unit or something like that. And, uh, you know, that that's one of the sneaky things that uh, we can talk about who owned the, these firearms about the police department. But uh, for uh, to hold it into your shoulder and properly aim it and such like that is, is quite a trick. And the, that's something probably someone who doesn't shoot doesn't understand. But you wear it just like you'd wear uh, your shoes or your shirt. So if somebody, you know, gives her a size 18 men's shirt, well, that's going to sit on her like a, like a tent. And if she's got size 12 shoes, men's size shoes, well, she's going to look like Bozo the Clown. And the same token with this rifle, it's so large and so big. It's uh, very difficult for her to port, as it's called, this rifle, because the length of pull, the length of the stock, even though it has, it has a telescoping stock, is just a little too big, and the gun is too top-heavy to lean forward and such like that. It puts enormous uh, pressure on you to use it properly, to aim it and shoot it. The right, way and she's a very diminutive woman. This, she was about 90 pounds by all accounts, and probably, yes. what, around maybe five, five foot? something a good wind would blow away. Right. Listen, we'll take a time out. When we come back, I want to talk about more of the uh, oddities, in, uh, including, you know, where did these weapons come from? The fact that the apartment uh, building belonging to this couple, uh, they had media crawling all over it within two days. This was a crime scene, should have been sealed. And then, of course, um, uh, well, there are, there, there's much to discuss. The, uh, the, the offices where the shooting took place were not surveilled, which seems very strange in this day and age. Uh, no video cameras. Uh, anyway, we'll discuss that and much more. George Freund, Conspiracy Cafe, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with George Freund from Conspiracy Cafe, researcher, uh, podcaster, and uh, a good friend of the program. All right, so um, we were talking about the uh, these weapons. Now, it's interesting uh, that the... The, the number of shots that were fired would tend to suggest 
that they weren't having to reload uh, constantly. In other words, these weapons um, did not have... There's a... Um, <clears throat> I, I think for the last 15 years in California, uh, the, the number of, uh, of bullets that you can have in the magazine has been limited to something... Is it like 10? Correct. So, obviously, given the number of shots that were fired off in the, in, in the, in the time frame that's been given, it's very unlikely that these... Uh, were these automatic rifles were were using the restricted uh, magazines? So they 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 were either uh, purchased illegally or before twenty twenty uh, the year two thousand, or they were police weapons because the police do not have this restriction on the magazines. It's a bit of both. Part of the cover story is they're saying that uh, he purchased the guns because you have to transfer all guns through a federally licensed firearms. Uh, dealer in California as part of their gun control laws. And that dealer ended up to be a guy called Enrique Marquez. And he was a friend of the family and uh, extended family of Farouk. So this magazine is also to be permanently fixed to the gun so that it can't be removed. And so they were alleging with the cover story perhaps that uh, they had tampered with the gun and they took it up, took the pin out that allows you to have it permanently fixed and modified it so it could accept magazines. But uh, that was all well and good, uh, you know, a nice diatribe until I heard a presidential candidate. Uh, I'll just uh, see if I can stop her name. Here. It was Carly Fiorino. Yes. So I heard her on a talking head show that uh, was cut into an Alex Jones clip. And, you know, she's talking about a reporter who found out that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms was tracing the guns and it was a story they were running with like you were going for the long bomb in football because the two handguns were purchased by Farouk and then they found out that one of these rifles first point of sale was to the local police department the San Bernardino Police Department and that just you know you just fall apart laughing to say there you go how dumb can you get you plant a police gun on a patsy it you just blew it right right and and Fiorino uh you know, wanted to pursue that that discussion, and the uh, the talk show host was it MSNBC, I think. Um, yes. Just quickly change subjects. Oh yeah, that that's another classic case of you got them, and uh, they use that ploy. They if they they'll call you a name and change topics, or just change topics, and as as if that doesn't matter uh, what was said. And uh, that, that's a very pertinent piece of information. And it's not uncommon in the Obama administration because they did that Project Gunrunner where they were giving uh, you know, what would appear to be stolen guns from gun shops in Texas to the drug cartels in Mexico, hoping that they could follow their movements and their crimes because they'd know the serial numbers of these guns they gave them. And uh, those guns killed a lot of people, including a Mexican police officer. I remember she was killed, and two members of the United States Border Patrol. Yes. And their families are suing and trying to get justice for their uh, their loved ones because they were assassinated with these guns. There were fights in the in the BATF, and that was all orchestrated by Eric Holder, the, uh, the yes. Attorney General. And uh, you know, one has to ask, you know, when is he going to be held account for that fiasco? Never, uh, never. Probably not on this earth. All right, so. Then help me. Well, let's uh, let's uh, explore some of these other strange uh, circumstances before I ask you to try and piece this all together for us in the time that remains. Uh, and that is the apartment belonging to this couple. Uh, within two days, I think, the media were allowed access. They were crawling all over it, stomping through a crime scene. And in the videos, we saw 
uh, all sorts of shredded documents uh, uh, on, on the floor. Uh, I believe they may have found some passports, which sounds kind of familiar, going back to 9-11 uh, and the pristine hijacker passport found at the, uh, <laughs> at the, uh, the foot of the World Trade Center tower. Um, very unusual. I mean, everyone, even in law enforcement down there, is scratching their head saying, what the heck is going on? Allowing media uh, access to this apartment within two days? That, that, that should have been sealed up for two weeks or more. With the level of the crime, it's almost like a formula would determine how long that uh, unit would be sealed. So if you had just a, a relatively moderate crime, which could even include just a nondescript homicide, that the tape would be on the door, it would be sealed, no one enters this without calling the police department and breaks the seal. And uh, that could stay that way until the trial in, in, in a case. When you get it, the more severe the case, like this one where you're talking mass murder, the fact that the room wasn't sealed and still under police guard for a significant amount of time. Because even if you thought you found everything, maybe something you found would say, oh, well, behind this false wall there was something else, or under the floor there was something else, or inside some other place. Well, now the scene's been contaminated, and you could never use any evidence that could come out of that place ever again. Exactly. And it, it just boggles the belief. The other thing was they said that he was throwing pipe bombs and uh, had may have been dealing in explosives or something. And when you look at these media descending into this apartment, like, uh, you know, they're going for candy at the candy store because they left the door open, uh, I find that incredulous to believe that they would take the chance to walk into a place that could be booby-trapped or contaminated with an explosive, that you could pick up something and blow yourself up. Uh, That's you know, an I excellent remember, point, an excellent point. Oh, I remember firsthand going to a bomb call ages and ages and ages ago and uh, with a bomb squad officer from Peel Police coming into Toronto at a local high school to look into some kid's locker who blew himself up in a bowling alley. And, uh, you know, so he was in front, I was beside him, and there was a whole bunch of uniformed cops behind us. And as we go to turn down the corridor where his locker was, all of a sudden everybody's gone. There's just the two of us left. And I'm going, hey, where'd everybody go? Right, right. <laughs> because common sense kicks in. And, uh, you know, so the, the bomb squad detective goes, oh, don't worry. You know, I know what I'm doing. This is okay. And I go, well, you know, you know what you're doing. I believe you. So it's just the two of us. <laughs> so... And then the shredded documents. Uh, you would think that they would gather them up and they would they would they would put uh, employ dozens of people trying to uh, you know to, to to piece those back together. Much the same. I, w I watched uh, Argo uh, the other night and they the, the in the Iranian embassy of Took course. Took the words out of my mouth. They were they were they were uh, gluing those back together. They had these Indeed. children that were carpet weavers gluing them back together to try and find out who the missing um, uh, embassy staff were. You know, why didn't they do that in this case? They that left was, them on the floor. Exactly. That was, that's a treasure trove. You're not talking, that's like you got the winning lotto numbers before the lottery. It's, it's you know, there, there's, there's, the fact that you would leave it behind tells us we have a contrived uh, story, and uh, it doesn't really matter what uh, is in the place because it's all planted and useless anyway. This is a stage, like Shakespeare said, the world is a stage, every actor plays his part, and these are just actors doing, like wrestling, you know, something... We roll down on the mats and flip each other over, so it's entertaining for the average person to watch who doesn't believe that this is orchestrated or contrived. Mm. A number of, uh, of uh, law enforcement officials uh, who were looking at some of the news footage as these reporters were roaming around in the, uh, the, um, the apartment said, strange thing, no fingerprint dust anywhere to be seen. 
correct. What does that mean? That means they never they, they, that apartment was never properly searched, and uh, and co- and the no evidence collection trail was ever put in motion there. It's a stage set, and it was a bad one because some of the people who work to contrive these uh, these stories are so poor. Even when they're making some of their videos, the holes in them. One of the other stories that goes with this is the people who are interviewed on TV. People call them crisis actors right away. But one of the main uh, criteria they have for uh, accusing them of being a crisis actor is they're laughing and smiling. And, uh, you know, if you've just seen a major traumatic event where people are killed and you're afraid for your life, like truly afraid, uh, you're not smiling and you're not laughing unless you're in a straitjacket and they're hauling you away somewhere. Well, you're not suggesting that this was this was a hoax. I mean, you believe those 14 people are dead, correct? Uh, I believe there was a primary target, and he was the uh, the ultimate uh, takeout. And I believe the uh, the hit team were the three men who went inside there to kill this guy. And uh, it's sometimes hard to find the names of the victims and all their backgrounds appropriately. But uh, it was just pay dirt one day uh, when I found. Uh, the primary target or what should be the primary target and that just changed how I looked at uh, this thing completely. Ah, because, can you tell, can you share with us who, who you believe the primary target was? Oh yes, just let me get my, uh, I believe his name was Barry Howard and uh, the big thing about him is he had a very unique position in the government and uh, that's what uh, just makes it leap to the top of the page is he worked prior to his employment at, uh, you know, this San Bernardino civil government job, he worked for the Department of Homeland Security. Mm. And not just that he worked for them, he was one of their chief top researchers. And, you know, when I, when I found that, I, I was just floored. I was going like, wow, th- this is the guy. Her- oh, pardon me, Harry Bowman, that's his name. And... Uh, so he worked for a center called CREATE, and that's at USC. It's the uh, Department of Homeland Security University where they do research. And they're doing, like, cutting-edge research on every project that goes on in the intelligence or spook agencies. So mostly it's uh, COINTELPRO things nationally. It can be foreign intelligence because, uh, you know, the domestic intelligence does have to know what's going on overseas. But he's right in the loop. And he was one of the founding members of this center. And then he left the farm, as uh, you may call it in the intelligence agencies, where maybe he realized, you know, I've had enough of doing this stuff, maybe not because it's uh, a stellar thing that you can tell your mom about. And uh, he, he got out. And if he's prone to talk or to be a risk to talk and spoil operations, uh, well... Why wouldn't they just give him a heart attack? That's uh, something that happens frequently, but it, it is America... One of the other stories uh, I broke, uh, you know, is with a primary target for the Beltway Sniper was a woman who made something called the InfraGuard system for the FBI, and uh, that allowed all computers in law enforcement to be connected together and share information, willingly Mm. or unwillingly. And she just happened to be one of these people who was shot. And she's going like, what a CV this woman had. That, uh, you know, you're at the top end of computer science in the FBI, and you just happen to be killed by the Beltway sniper who's turned off like a duck in a noose 
with a certain word mentioned exactly. on air to make him come out of his robotic killing trance. George, we are out of time. Uh, always fascinating. Uh, Merry Christmas and the best of the new year, and we will uh, talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you so much for this. Oh, bless you, and uh, have a good time with your family over Christmas. Good night. George Freund, Conspiracy Cafe. The website here, strangeplanet.ca. Follow me on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Say hello, and as always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi cab, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, and 96.7 FM, those listening in on one of our growing roster of affiliates, and of course the podcast available at iTunes and Stitcher, TuneIn.com and TalkZone.com. Those of you listening to the live stream at ZoomerRadio.ca and of course the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads available through iTunes and Google Play. Wherever and however you're listening, I bid you a very Merry Christmas. Nancy Duterte is standing by. Uh, She'll talk about her new book, How to Talk to an Alien, which is quite a provocative title. But we are approaching a time when I suppose we have to start thinking about these things. Uh, As the Kepler Space Observatory continues to survey parts of the Milky Way and discover Earth-sized extrasolar planets lying in that Goldilocks or habitable zone, there is that possibility that um, we will be confronted. Uh, We will have confirmation of an ET presence right here in our cosmic backyard. Uh, Back in 2013, uh, the Kepler Space Mission data estimated there could be as many as 40 billion Earth-sized planets uh, orbiting stars similar to our own sun or other red dwarf stars within the Milky Way alone. So for some, and I repeat, for some, uh, it's just a matter of time before ETs make their their presence here on Earth known. And it's just a matter of time before we have disclosure. Uh, Some UFO experiencers, abductees, insist aliens are already reaching out to us and trying to communicate, perhaps through crop circles. Uh, Remember the the strange hieroglyphs that Jesse Marcel Sr. and Jr. saw? on that tiny I-beam that was recovered from the UFO debris field near Roswell in 47. What about the digital download that Jim Penniston received when he was in close proximity to a UFO that landed in the Rendlesham Forest uh, over Christmas 1980? All possible forms of alien communication. So the question is, who will speak to the aliens on behalf of planet Earth? Who can translate their intentions, good or evil, toward the human race? How can we learn about their advanced technologies? Can aliens even speak human languages? These are just some of the the talking points addressed again in How to Talk to an Alien. And Nancy Dutart is best known as the skeptical psychic. She's a securities litigation attorney who became a trained psychic detective and remote viewer trained in military CRV methods. A magna cum laude graduate of Princeton University, She's a frequent media guest on shows such as Coast to Coast AM, and she hosted her own weekly radio program on CBS. She's certified in intuitive gestalt psychotherapy and is the author of several books, including Psychic Intuition, Everything You Ever Wanted to Ask 
but we're afraid to know. Nancy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much, Richard. This is kind of groundbreaking work to my mind. I don't ever recall seeing another book uh, that has addressed this issue. I mean, you are really uh, sort of leapfrogging over the whole, you know, um, you know, disclosure movement. It's time to stop worrying about it. Let's start ta- figuring out how we're going to speak to them. Thank you, and I, I really, really appreciate you recognizing that because uh, it, it seemed to me like it was just this obvious hole, you know, that nobody had really addressed is this area in all of ufology, and I couldn't understand, well, why... If it's so important, you know, to talk about disclosure and the fact that they're here and exopolitics and all that, um, why is nobody talking about uh, the way in which we ought to be communicating? I mean, and I'm I'm trained in, I mean, I'm fluent in French, I'm, I'm trained in German and Thai, so I speak a bunch of different languages, and I've lived in many different countries. So I know that when you go to a new place and you have to, you know, communicate with natives, you learn the language. So why aren't we thinking the same way with aliens? Uh, precisely. And uh, by some estimates, we're, I mean, we could be visited by a virtual sort of united nations of the, uh, the galactic community, something like 82 languages, uh, perhaps, we're dealing with 82 different alien civilizations visiting upon the Earth. I've seen estimates, and, and you know, I don't think anybody knows the definitive answer to that, but I have seen estimates that range from, you know, uh, in terms of different alien species or races, anywhere from 4 to 57 to 82 to 100 and some odd to up to 300. And it really depends, um, I think, a lot on what you choose to kind of lump into that mm, quasi-spiritual category. Uh, and and yet, as you as you point out, uh, in in our ongoing effort to uh, to communicate and find out, you know, who's out there, and and hope hopefully they're receiving our signals. We're still broadcasting the equivalent of a radio Morse code into outer space. Yes, I mean, isn't that kind of ridiculous? <laughs> isn't that kind of ridiculous? Yes, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, I, and by the way, I have total respect for the scientists and, and the people involved in setting up those systems, and obviously their elaborate systems, setting up digital radio waves. And, you know, back in 1974, it was, uh, I think, Frank Drake and, and Carl Sagan who decided to send out the Arecibo message um, out of the, from the uh, Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico, um, and, and they sent out this, you know, lovely digital um, binary message, which sent out lots of data about, you know, who we are, what's our chemical composition, average things about, you know, average humans, what their, what our telescope looked like, um, you know, where we're located in the solar system, you know, data like that. There was about, I don't know, seven or eight different sets of data. But they figured, okay, if we're, and they targeted a star system in the hopes that, well, you know, maybe if somebody's there, they'll pick it up in 25,000 years. By which time, maybe, if they do, and they're using the same type of uh, technology that we're using, that maybe we'll get an answer in 50,000 years, which just seems absolutely patently ridiculous to me. And there have been other, you know, I think we sent out um, these plates with information, I think it was on the one of the uh, Voyager craft that went out. 
So, I mean, it was set up with a, a to play, I think, like a phonograph. Right, yes. And already, you know, I mean, yeah, I had a phonograph when I was a kid. That's how old I am. But uh, that that's, you know, even in my lifetime. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, some civilization light years away will be listening to Montavani plays the Beatles, perhaps. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> but the, what about the, what about the two thousand and one um, uh, response to the uh, the seventy four Arecibo message? And this was uh, in the form of a crop circle in um, in Hampton, England. Uh, yeah. what, what do you make of that? Was that a, a genuine alien response? You know, I wasn't there, and I couldn't tell you, and I didn't make that crop circle. But uh, all I can say is, you know, what I'm suggesting to uh, anybody who's taking any of these topics seriously, as I really think they ought to, um, is instead of discarding um, information that, you know, you have already predecided is ridiculous or it's hoaxed or it's no good or it's that subjective, you know, f- you know, funny channeled stuff that psychics do or whatever. Bring all of that questionable data back into play because you don't know how aliens communicate. And I would suggest it's worthwhile taking a look at that response. And there was a, a fabulous response. Um, and basically it came back and it said, you know, that there... It was a response, allegedly, of aliens saying, well, instead of being more carbon-based, we're more silicon-based. Here's sort of what we look like. Uh, here's uh, our location um, in the solar system, and this is what our telescope looks like. And by the way, that same telescope showed up in a, uh, as a later crop circle. Um, you know, why not include it? Because that's an instantaneous response, which would be maybe more evolved, maybe more intelligent. And there, there's information that's coming through a bunch of these crop circles now, which um, wasn't known to humanity before. Uh, they've discovered new uh, Euclidean geometric theorem um, in the crop circles. Yeah, fractals. Yeah, they've got interesting fractals. They've got all kinds of really interesting things and, and harmonics and uh, a whole wide range of information. And uh, do I know if they're, you know, alien-made or human-made? I, I can only tell you that many, many years ago, uh, I met somebody in England at a... It was a place that was well-known where crop circle people met. and It was sort of an underground place at the time, probably isn't anymore. And he said that he had been drawn there, he was, he was English, and he thought that these crop circles were made by aliens. And when he showed up, he was very, very disappointed to find out that there was basically like an underground group of about, you know, roughly, I don't know, 40 or 50 people involved in making them. Hmm. But what he said was that even even though it seemed to be just the human groups making them, that very often they seemed to be... Um, Guided right, yes, yes, intelligently that. to create certain shapes. Sometimes two people or three people get the same idea the same night to create the same crop circle, or sometimes they would in the dark bump into each other, or they'd be, they'd see those, um, you know, the orbs above the, the the orbs of light flying above the crop circles. So there may be. I mean, I I do think that alien intelligence 
uh, and communication in many ways operates through us. It's not, we're the tool. You know, we're the telegraph machine. Right. Tools. We are tools. We, yeah. we use that term advisedly <laughs> sometimes. <Yeah. laughs> so we'll take a, we're going to take a time out, Nancy, uh, and we'll uh, come back. And, and um, I, I want to find out how you think we should be uh, approaching this in terms of preparing for communication. What sort of things do we need to keep in mind in terms of, of technology, techniques, uh, the alien mindset, and so forth? How to talk to an alien? Can they speak our languages? Can they read our minds? What are they trying to tell us? Nancy Duterte here on The Conspiracy Show. And we are back. How to talk to an alien? Can they speak our languages? Can they read our minds? What are they trying to tell us? Brand new book uh, from Nancy Duterte with a a foreword by Stanton Friedman and some very nice comments uh, from uh, Mr. Nori, my colleague over at Coast to Coast, and of course, uh, Jim Mars. And as I said earlier, uh, this is really sort of groundbreaking work. No other book, to my knowledge, has sort of broached this subject area. Uh, you know, let's stop uh, talking, uh, chasing the lights in the sky and um, stop, you know, wringing our hands and waiting for some sort of a disclosure um, uh, announcement from the Rose Garden at the White House. Let's just figure out when they come. Well, they're, they're already here. Let's figure out how we're going to talk to them and, and, uh, and communicate uh, with us. So uh, do you have some sort of uh, uh, protocols in mind or uh, sort of a, a way of wrapping our heads around this all-important subject? What are the things that we need to be doing and keeping in mind? One of the really interesting things that I learned in researching different types of alien languages, and by the way, there are lots of them. Some people insist that there's only one and, you know, they're being communicated with and that's it. And what I've discovered is there there are actually many. Some of them uh, correlate. So the whole idea here, what I'm trying to do is to create like a, uh, a Rosetta Stone so that, which is how they discovered what the Egyptian hieroglyphics meant, but it was only by reference they could go to the, you know, the, the Greek or to the uh, Egyptian Demotic script on the same stone and, you know, piece it together. Well, since nobody has really been that interested in alien language because they figured, oh, you know, it's those, those people who are channeling that, you know, that stuff, or people who are doing it are sort of keeping it private so that there's not a sharing involved. So what I'm trying to do is to build up a large enough database so that we can start to see, you know, who's using which, the, the same symbols or the same glyphs or, or alphabet letters, if indeed they're using an alphabet. They may not use alphabets at all. That's a whole other thing. And their writing may actually uh, be representative, for example, instead of like, a, you know, our writing is two-dimensional. We write it, you know, like on a piece of paper or on a computer, and it's flat. But we make little um, symbols and things to basically indicate, well, you know, uh, this like a, a German umlaut, which is two dots, you know, that you... Right, right. It, 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 that means you're supposed to create a sound a particular way. Or in um, Arabic, it, uh, dots around the letters will indicate, you know, which ones are supposed to go with which words or how they're supposed to be pronounced. Well, alien languages may, in fact, they may use similar types of symbols, but they may be uh, indicators of something multidimensional. Like maybe you're supposed to pronounce this particular thing 
in, uh, you know, three or four different uh, phonetic tones, you know, or in, in several different uh, time zones, you know. I mean, there, there could be many, many things like that. We just haven't looked at it well enough yet. Well, um, where are we? Is this coming to you and, and other researchers in terms of alien languages, uh, sort of piecemeal, anecdotally, for example, uh, you know, Jim Penniston at Rendell, Rendlesham scribbles in a notebook some glyphs that he saw on, the, on, the, on this craft. Uh, 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 someone uh, claimed to be, uh, who claims to be an abductee uh, is able to recount some telepathic communications. Is, is that how this information is being gathered? You know, you gather it wherever you can get it. And what I've suggested is that there are three basic ways to get it. The first way is you get an actual artifact. And if you've got one, you know, I really hope you'll show it to me because (laughs) coming up with an actual alien artifact is uh, not that easy. You know, everybody thinks of the Roswell I-beam with the hieroglyphs, uh, you know, on it. And obviously that was uh, carefully... Uh, carted off by the military, and, and as are most of these things, if they come to light. So uh, it's kind of hard to find them. Uh, I did in my book, I, I do talk about a letter that was allegedly dropped out of a spacecraft in 1965, and it was retrieved by the contactee, uh, whose name was John Reeve, I believe. And it it wasn't really on a piece of paper. It was on some type of material-like paper, but it wasn't an earthly material, apparently. And it was it had all these funny sort of like chicken scratch-looking things written on it. And he told the media about it, and then he handed it over to the military, and that was uh, the last he saw of it. He eventually got back, I think, a, a, some type of a copy. Um But what I do in my book, How to Talk to an Alien, is I show that those same characters, which are in the category of uh, what's known as dot and line, because they have these little dots and they've got these funny little, uh, you know, straight line. As I said, it kind of looks like chicken scratch. It looks an awful lot like the ancient uh, Nordic uh, runic alphabet. Right, right. and when I showed, so there you have an actual artifact, all right? And that's very rare. The second best category is you get a contactee or an abductee who's actually seen something. Um, most often it's writing that's uh, inside or outside a spacecraft, and they remember it. And sometimes they can actually, they can remember it with their, you know, flat out their memory. Sometimes it's in uh, hyp- hypnotic regression. So I'm... And then the third category, which is a category that nobody ever really wants to deal with because scientists and, and academics get really squirrely when you, tar- you start talking about, you know, psychic channeling or uh, different types of hypnotic regression, trance states, dreams, automatic writing, things like that. But if you take those categories back, as I said, assume that, that we're being used simply as uh, – receivers, basically, you know, like a radio receiver, right? and use that information. Assume that maybe some of it's not going to be great, but some of it may be just dynamite stuff. And you cross-compare them. Cross-compare them with the memories of the abductees and the contactees, and cross-compare them with anything you can get from an actual artifact. 
and you start seeing similarities right across the board. It's really, really interesting. Would that be uh, so? For example, uh, here on uh, planet Earth, we have the Romance languages, uh, French and, and and Spanish, and so forth. Um, so, is that the type of similarity you're you're seeing that, uh, in, at least in the written form? Um, yeah, I think it's better than that um, because you can actually match up the identical symbols, and you can do it across, you know, all. Well, what I put in the book is like three or four different categories, and you can match them up. I took, I'll give you another example. Um, there was a, a very famous um, mathemat- mathematician and astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I. His name was John Dee. He was alive in the 16th century. He had an encounter with what he called an angel, and he then uh, began to basically channel uh, or do automatic automatic writing of a sort of um, this angelic alphabet. He said it was delivered to him backwards. He traced it in light. It was like a pale yellow light. And it was it was told to him by this angel that it was too powerful to be delivered in its forward sense. It was delivered backwards. And there were a whole series of um, angelic languages uh, you know, at the time, that were being used for healing purposes by alchemists, um, those different for, because they can the word the letters or the glyphs contain powers. What I did is I matched up his alphabet with some writing that was done by a 19th century French uh, medium whose name was uh, I think Helene Smith. It wasn't a real name, um, but she claimed to have traveled to Mars. You know, she drew these drawings of Martian landscapes, and she claimed to write in Martian. So I took Hmm. one of her, like, little bits of Martian writing, and I compared it to John Dee's alphabet. Right off the bat, and John Dee's alphabet's got 22 characters. The little piece of writing I took from her, it had 36 characters. And there were right off the bat, three or four that were identical. Interesting. Is it is it not possible, uh, Nancy, that she had uh, seen the, the, the writing of John Dee as well? You know, anything is possible. Hmm. Uh, anything at all. But I think, and that's why I said there was actually a book that was written by a psychiatrist, a Swiss psychiatrist, about her. And uh, it's very detailed. He he goes into all of her languages and this and that and does this very careful sort of analysis. But in the end, he concludes that because her language was so similar to the syntax of French, that it had to be bogus. Hmm. And so he dismissed the whole thing. And what I'm saying is, okay, you know, maybe that's, first of all, I have problems with some of his analysis. I won't go into that, but... That's okay, but how about let's start cross-comparing people. Let's not just take one person at a time because, you know, he started analyzing her, you know, is she mentally stable, is she having hallucinations, and he went into the whole psychiatrist thing. And uh, I'm saying uh, let's get past that because if you get the same symbols that are uh, recurring through different artifacts, different centuries, different people, um, then you've, you've got something that you can analyze. 
The, the whole idea of telepathic communication uh, comes to us, by and large, I think, from the alien abductees uh, or, or victims of alien abduction, if I can use that term, victim. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, 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 on that, the, the idea that they are communicating telepathically? And if they can, if they can communicate telepathically, uh, then it would seem to me we would be talking about, obviously, a, a, a far more e- evolved, technologically, uh, spiritually perhaps evolved entity than uh, a civilization that's still using uh, Nordic ruins, for lack of a better, a better term. First of all, I think that, I mean, it's well known they, they communicate telepathically. That's the one thing that seems to be most commonly reported. Uh, among many or all of the different species. No, I'm not going to say all. Most, but not all. Um, Abduction researcher David Jacobs has said that he believes that this telepathic communication is the only type of communication that goes on uh, during an abduction or a contact experience. And he says it's it's telepathic alien to alien, alien to human, and human to human until the, the humans get back to Earth. And then they're human again. And as he, in his opinion, we don't have telepathic abilities, and therefore, you know, it's got to be that alien thing going on. We're using their carrier wave, I guess. Uh, well, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. But, but um, I don't believe, first of all, since I'm a trained psychic, I mean, I trained into everything. I was not psychic before. I know that you can be trained into it. Well, if you... and, and Part of being psychic is being somewhat telepathic. We may we may not be as telepathic, but uh, I th- we have that ability. And my research also showed that there are tons of cases that you can find, well documented ones, which involve telepathic and uh, vocalized audible speech being done by the alien. So it's both, and they use both. What's interesting is that most people don't stop to think when they're thinking about telepathic language, how's it done? You know, what do you, how do you, how did you get the message? And it can either be done as a wholesale imposition of the entire thought on your brain, it can be done visually, or it can be done audibly. And All right, when let, it's let me done just audibly, you can do it as. Forgive me, I got to jump in here. We'll we'll hold on to that. We'll we'll come up, uh, come back after the break and, and pick up on that point. Telepathic communication. I'm back with more of my conversation with Nancy Duterte here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, we are back with Nancy Duterte. How to talk to an alien? We were talking about telepathic communication, and uh, you were discussing uh, how that might be facilitated. Yeah. So, and uh, just to go back a little bit, I was explaining that you can telepathic communication can be subdivided many different ways. Aliens communicate with us in their alien languages, and they communicate with us in our native languages and in other human languages. Um, so, and sometimes they make mistakes. I mean, there's a really interesting case. Uh, you know, the uh, Betty Andreessen uh, Luca case. Yes. Uh, very well known, and uh, these five little, I think they were probably greys, showed at her house, they put her family in suspended animation, and they telepathically communicate with her, and they say something like, uh, we'd like some uh, or burnt meat. And she's thinking, uh, okay. So she starts cooking, and she's 
busy burning some meat for them, and they get all sort of panicky, and they say, no, 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 we want uh, something like uh, knowledge that's been uh, tried by fire. <laughs> and so she's thinking, you know, something meaty, meaty knowledge that's been tried by fire. So she's thinking, she's racking her brain saying, what the heck? And so she goes, the only thing she can think of is she goes and gets her Bible. Because that's knowledge, meaty knowledge that's been tried by fire. Right, right. And that's exactly what they wanted. So even they were making mistakes telepathically communicating in English. And there are other examples like that, too. It's just really interesting. Uh, you, you pose kind of a fun question, uh, and that is whether aliens speak human languages with an accent. Uh, I'm, 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 I know that there is a, a method to your madness with that question. <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, actually, I, uh, that was one of my favorite things in sort of exploring, because what I realized was that there's a huge amount of, of information that you get by knowing if the alien is speaking with an accent or if they're speaking with no accent, if they're speaking perfectly fluently. Because in both situations, you're learning something about where they come from, how much interaction they've had with humans, uh, who taught them, and uh, how long they may have been around. And um, it's quite fascinating. I mean, there was... um, one of my my favorite things was uh, an alien who um, this comes out of the W fifty six friendship case in Italy, and um, that was a it was an ongoing situation where there was a collective of different races of aliens who were communicating directly with an entire town in Italy, and eventually with top politicians and industrialists and scientists all over Europe. They apparently lived in a 200-mile-long base beneath the Adriatic Sea. And one of them, um, he, I guess his Italian wasn't that good. Um, and, and by the way, this group, they were speaking Italian, uh, French, German, Spanish. They were really good with the human languages. But this guy spoke with an accent, and it was learned that he had learned how to speak Italian by listening to old radio uh, clips of Mussolini. <laughs> so now you got to imagine an alien speaking like Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, what about um, aliens using? Um, I'm I'm thinking almost of the of EVPs, uh, electronic voice phenomena. Where and and who knows? I mean, we assume EVPs are are uh, you know the ghosts uh, or the voices of discarnate spirits, but perhaps is it possible uh, aliens are using radio interference and and these sorts of things in order to communicate with us? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe that's true. And I know that in the W56 case, uh, uh, there was an engineer who was involved in in that, uh, or writing about it anyway, his name was uh, Stefano Breccia. And he he said that they could specifically target in a room full of TVs, which would have been kind of unusual in the 1950s, you know, so it was very cutting-edge technology. They could target one TV set and um, use that for communication. They could do the same thing with some of the really, really early computers also. Um, so uh, coming across, I mean, I've received um, phone calls, 
from uh, entities that I, I mean, just by deduction, I mean, there's just no other thing that they could be. Uh, I've received them. My daughter's received them. Uh, our friends have heard them. Uh, I've heard recordings of them from other friends and colleagues. So, yeah, they can use any type of electronic uh, technology. I think it's pretty easy for them to, uh, to manipulate. All right. We are coming up on another break. And uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about aliens among us and whether or not uh, you know, or what percentage, perhaps, of, of uh, aliens are biologically equipped uh, to speak uh, using vocal cords and so forth. Back with more of my conversation with Nancy Dutertra here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Uh, we are back with Nancy Dutertra. How to talk to an alien. How do uh, people get the book, Nancy? Uh, very easy. They can get it on uh, Amazon. I think it's in Barnes & Nobles, bookstores, smaller bookstores. I know Mufon's carrying it. Um, they go to my website. Uh, they should get more information on it. So that's either theskepticalpsyche.com or talkalien.com. Uh, seems like a, an obvious question, but are, are aliens, or maybe what percentage uh, do we think, uh, actually are biologically equipped for, for speech using, you know, a, a larynx and, and tongue and lips and, and, and so forth? Well, that's what I spent some time thinking about, because if you are going to talk about, you know, vocalized speech, then you have to think about, well, what kinds of, I mean, can they, can they even make sounds like us? I mean, we know that in the animal kingdom, a lot of them, a lot of animals can't make our human sounds and vice versa. Uh, so, I mean, it seemed to me pretty obvious that the the humanoid types of aliens can, they at least on the exterior, seem to be able to, like they've got all the equipment to speak. Although I did discover uh, in reading about uh, an alien allegedly from the planet Venus, Valiant Thor, uh, that he had one giant lung. He also had a few other oddities, uh, like copper oxide blood and very like IQ of 1,200 or above. Um, and he, by the way, spoke apparently hundreds of languages. Um, but he so but he was humanoid looking. I mean, you look at him. You, uh, I, I included some photos in the book, and you would think, well, okay, that's you know, that's got to be a hoax or something because the guy looks human. I included another photo of uh, a different uh, hu- humanoid type. He's a giant from the W56 case, and they've uh, you know done various authentications on that photo. And so they seem to have all the equipment. But then you start to get into these uh, stranger categories like the uh, you know, reptilian types or the insectoid types. And I, what I say in my book, How to Talk to an Alien, which is don't automatically assume that if you don't see ears, for example, on their head, that that means that they can't hear. Because, for example, if the uh, mantis type of uh, insectoid aliens or anything like our praying mantises, the insects, um, those insects have ears on their uh, abdomens. Hmm. Crickets have them on their forelegs. Frogs have them in their lungs. I mean, you, they may be on the outside or on the inside and nowhere near where we assume that you need that equipment. True enough. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, 
interesting. Uh, you, you make mention of Charles Hall, uh, who was, I guess, uh, was a meteorologist working out uh, near Area Fifty One, and, and had an encounter with these tall whites. Uh, what did Hall uh, say in terms of uh, the way these tall whites uh, communicated? I mean, these were a very kind of a this is a, let's face it, a, a very intimidating a race of aliens, uh, very mercurial <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. From everything that that he wrote about them, um, they apparently. Oh, and by the way, he said that they could, they were easily uh, taken by the various military folks and disguised and brought into uh, Las Vegas to do a little gambling or a little shopping. So apparently, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they you, you know they like to do similar things but uh yeah apparently they were very family oriented very protective of their families um to the point of crazy uh and also aggressive and uh, didn't matter how much history you had with them he apparently was once wounded pretty badly by them but anyway he said that they communicated in uh little high extremely high squeaky noises that to him sounded like meadowlarks Hmm. Um, and he said they also communicated in different situations. They sounded like dogs barking or dogs yelping. And I know that in the Brazilian case with uh, uh, Vilas Boas, um, the Brazilian farmer who was abducted and uh, had sort of a very, for him, not a great sexual encounter with an alien um, he also said that they communicated with this sort of, they sound like dogs barking. So, you know, it would kind of, we could take some of the studies that we do with uh, understanding animal sounds, like, you know, dolphins or dogs or anything, and start to apply some of the same principles to, uh, any, to these types of communications by aliens. Do you think they're approaching uh, our our language in the same manner? In other words, uh, I mean, are they more interested in trying to learn how to communicate with us? Are they busy trying to develop the equivalent of a, an app so that they can, uh, you know, to facilitate to, to facilitate uh, communication in in, uh, in a human language? It's been reported that aliens, uh, they're not always, you know, apparently inherently brilliant at uh, speaking many, many languages or knowing all of our human languages, and that very often it's reported that they're carrying these um, different technological devices or instruments, such as, like, uh, silver uh, orbs or spheres, uh, or these kind of things that look like wands. Some of them are described as boxes. Some of them have, um, uh, I guess, knobs on their headgear that they can switch. And all of these things, apparently, once they're activated, the contactees say that uh, the languages switch. So they have that ability. And by the way, we've, I mean, we've, we have Google Translate right now, which exactly. is not great, but... You know, it, it does the basic job, and we've got uh, technologies that are being developed right now. Uh, for example, by a neuroscientist named Jack Gallant, who's out at the uh, 
University of California, Berkeley, um, who's developing ways that we can actually um, see the, uh, act- the, the dream landscapes, the, the visions that we see when we're dreaming. And uh, he figures, you know, within oh, just a few decades, I mean, not long at all, that we're going to be wearing what he calls like the equivalent of like a Google hat, where we just switch, you know, we can switch it and we can read minds. We can see what people are thinking. I mean, it's going to be very similar to what psychics are already doing now. You know, it's just going to be done in a technological way. Right, right. No, uh, we we are definitely on that fast track. There's no question about it. I kind of glossed over. uh, I want to revisit this because your own experiences um, with... Uh, we were talking about EVPs and, and how aliens might manipulate uh, radio waves and so forth. And, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your experiences with what you call alien phone voices and radio interference. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, I can tell you that, that for me personally, and by the way, I was not interested in UFOs or ufology or any of this stuff. Um, I had a pretty dramatic uh, sighting with my daughter. She and I came out of a movie theater uh, not far from home, and uh, we looked up in the sky, and there was a, uh, what I later learned was, I guess, a mothership. It was the size of a football field. It was covered in 20 or 30 orange lights. It was boomerang-shaped. It was just sitting there. And eventually, a number of things happened. There was a, a white orb that the telescope to open off of one end, uh, and then this thing cloaked or dematerialized in three phases. And it was after that experience that um, she and I, we'd be having phone conversations, and we would the, the conversation would be interrupted. And in every situation, uh, we couldn't hear each other, but we could both hear the voice. And it was usually a sort of, I mean, weird, cold, creepy, sort of electronic-sounding male voice um, that would start talking, only it was really, really hard to understand because it was coming through with such thick, uh, like, sound wave distortion. Um, And generally it would say whatever it was saying, and then, and it it did say my daughter's name once, Um, it would finish and then it would hang up both of us Hmm. and then we would try to call each other back and we couldn't usually for five or ten minutes both of our lines would just ring and ring and ring and that happened on many occasions and then it it would it also happened with her when she was speaking with some of her friends and it happened with me when i was speaking with uh some of my friends so it wasn't just us. And it was, I mean, the, the sounds were clearly not anything like um, any type of telephone interference or third party, you know, crossing lines or anything like that that I have ever heard. I mean, this stuff was, it was wild. What do you suppose that was all about? What was the intention there? I, I think that... Um, the effort was being made to communicate with us a, after a connection, I, and I'm assuming, had been made from that sighting. And by the way, 
I've since had many sightings, and so has my daughter. Um, so I think there was an effort to communicate. And, you know, I think if you look at, I do believe that they have this an ability to uh, induce many uh, mental and perceptive or, or perception states. Okay, so they have mind control abilities that I think are extremely powerful. And I think that in some ways, if they're uh, speaking, it's not necessarily required that you intellectually understand them. You know, like when we're talking, we're actually thinking while we're talking. And I don't know that that's the, the, the same rules apply. That is a rather frightening proposition. Yeah, but I think it's just something we all have to uh, recognize because there's so many instances of that. I mean, it's, uh, I'm certainly not the only one. There, there are plenty of documented cases. Sure, sure. I mean, one has to then wonder yeah. uh, about certain human behaviors and, and criminal activity and, and uh, activity or, or behavior that's seemingly out of character. Uh, are they being perhaps uh, controlled, manipulated by some some otherworldly entity. Uh, well, Nancy, listen, a fascinating, fascinating book. Congratulations. How to Talk to an Alien. Thank and you. Uh, I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you for this. Thank you very much, Richard. I appreciate it. Nancy Duterte, How to Talk to an Alien. Can they speak our languages? Can they read our minds? What are they trying to tell us? All right, back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.